Bibles, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 6. And today we're looking once again into this very familiar portion of Scripture. This is perhaps one of the most easily recognized parts of the Bible. I mean, people who couldn't quote any verse of the Bible otherwise uh, do know this part of the Scripture very well. And of course, we're talking here about the Lord's Prayer. And this is the instruction that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount concerning the right way to pray. Now, unfortunately, uh, most people just memorize this prayer, and they really don't know the real purpose that Jesus gave it, the real intent of what he was trying to tell the people through this prayer. This prayer was actually given as a uh, response to the hypocritical way that the people in Jesus' time were praying. And Jesus told the people uh, that their prayers did not measure up to the standard that had been set by God because their prayers, instead of honoring God and instead of communicating with God, were merely prayers to be seen by others. This was one of the ways that they tried to show how holy and righteous that they were. And so they didn't really honor God in their prayers. They were looking at themselves. But God is to be gloriously magnified through prayer. Now, some weeks ago, we studied in chapter 5, and that was the theological portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And because the theology of the people was wrong, their worship was also wrong. You can't get right worship and right practice out of the wrong theology. And so Jesus comes to chapter 6, or this part of the prayer, or excuse me, part of the sermon, and he's dealing with these wrong practices of worship. Prayer is one of the ways that we worship God. Uh, That's our relationship to deity. Uh, There are other ways that we worship God. We worship God in relation to others and also in relation to ourselves. But this is about deity. And so it should seem obvious to us that this would be the really the most important part of our worship. And indeed, we see when Jesus teaches on uh, these different subjects that prayer is the one that holds the prominence of all three of those areas. So Jesus then paused here to give the people a model prayer, and this was intended to be an outline on which they would construct their own prayers. What we have here is a prayer that contains all the essential elements of a proper prayer. And so we're to take this outline that Jesus gave, and these people were, and build upon that outline, make the prayer our own, but make sure it contains all these different elements that we find in the prayer. Now, most of us seem to think that prayer is a very simple thing, that we can just come to God any way that we want to. But Jesus seems to think otherwise. And so that's why he he just gave a masterfully crafted prayer outline, and it does contain all of the essential elements of prayer. Now, today we're going to read the prayer again. And if you like, when we we get into it, you can recite it with me if you like. But we're going to uh, read the prayer. Then we're going to come back to one particular portion of it, and we're going to try to understand why Jesus put that particular portion in the prayer. Now, if you'll stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse number 9 is where we begin. And the Bible says, After this manner pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you again today, we just ask that you would 
Be with us as we consider this portion of your word. Bless, Lord, and help us to understand a little bit better why Jesus would include the particular part of the prayer that we're going to talk about today. So give us understanding. Uh, Bless our people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are considering the different parts of the Lord's Prayer, and we've looked at the first sentence or the first verse of the prayer in verse number 9, and Jesus begins this prayer with, Our Father, which art in heaven. And that's the relationship of prayer. The one to whom prayer is addressed is God the Father, and for anyone to have a right to speak with God, there has to be a previously established relationship. Not just anyone has the right to pray. Not just anyone has the right to come to God and call Him Father. I mean, just because you've been created, just because you've been put into this world, just because you were born one of God's creatures, does not mean that you can automatically call God your Father. Now, the Bible teaches that there must be a relationship in order to call God Father. And that relationship is because we have put our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. And so before you can ever claim God as your Father, you must have trusted in Christ. Then we considered the next phrase of the prayer, and that is, Hallowed be thy name. And that is the reverence of prayer. You need to understand who God is. You have to understand that God's name is holy, that his name is to be revered and hallowed, to be lifted up. It's a name that represents everything that God is. You see, uh, when we talk about God's name, we're not just talking about the pronunciation of the name or the name itself, but we're talking about everything that that name represents. It represents the character of God. And so when we call God our Father, we're speaking to Him through about His omnipotence, about His omniscience, about His holiness, about all the things that make God what He is. And you need to recognize God's character when you come to Him in prayer, and you must revere, and you must respect, and you must awe, reverence the name of God. So Jesus begins with those two very essential elements of prayer. You are to know the one that you address, and you are to come before him with the right attitude. And so we see already in the beginning of the prayer that God has the prominence in our prayers. I mean, the first part of the prayer is that we must recognize who God is. Now, that also carries into the next statement uh, that we're going to consider today. Now, we are breaking this prayer down into the different component parts, and each one of them does have great significance. It's not a prayer that you just memorize and that you repeat mindlessly, but we are to know and we are to consider very carefully why Jesus makes each one of these statements. So then we come to this next statement, and Jesus says, Thy kingdom come, and that is the rule of prayer. That is the desire that God should be recognized as king, that his rule would be acknowledged by all, And if we had to choose a favorite part of the prayer, if I could choose my favorite part, I would have to say this is the phrase that I like the best. This is perhaps the one that I like to talk about the most because I believe in the glory of God's kingdom. And I love to talk about the kingdom of God. So every statement in the prayer is significant because there is a progression in the prayer. Every statement that's made builds a foundation for the next statement that's made. So when we recognize that God is our Father and that His name is to be revered, when we know who God is and we know what His name means, then we automatically recognize that God is the one who is to rule us. 
We recognize that God has the right to be our king, and we desire that God should rule over us. But we're aware that there are many people who can't call God their father. There are many people who don't revere the name of God. And also there are many people who refuse to bow down to him. Now these are people that are in another kingdom and they're being ruled by a different God. That's a kingdom of evil. And so the reason that we pray that Christ's kingdom should come, God's kingdom should come, is because that other kingdom must be subdued. And that happens when God the Father and Jesus Christ His Son and the Holy Spirit of God are recognized as the supreme ruler over all. Now today, this is what I want to speak to you about. I want to talk to you about God's kingdom. Thy kingdom come is not really just a very simple statement. There are many people who don't even know what you're talking about when you speak about the kingdom of God. And again, I say, if there's a favorite part of my prayer, of this prayer rather, this has to be it. Thy kingdom come. So we're going to break this down today into three different areas of discussion so you can understand what's meant by the phrase, thy kingdom come. Now, first we need to consider the creation kingdom. Now, it may seem odd that uh, Christ should pray for God's kingdom to come because in a sense, God's kingdom has already been established. God is the sovereign ruler over all, and that's been demonstrated by creation. God is the one who made everything. God designed it. God crafted it. He put his stamp all over everything that's made. And so because he owns it, then certainly God has the right to rule over it. When Paul was speaking to the Athenians on Mars Hill, he said this. He said, For I passed by and beheld your devotions, and I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all the things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. So when Paul went into the city of Athens, he was greeted by a people who worshipped a multitude of gods. And when he walked into the city, there he saw that there was an altar that was made to an unknown god. Now these people worshipped so many gods that they were afraid that they might leave one out. And so they made an altar there, and they didn't want to offend any of the gods, and so they put the unknown god on this altar. Now, when Paul saw that, he used that as an opportunity to tell them about the god that they didn't know. And the god they didn't know is the one who is the creator of all things, God who made the heaven and the earth. Now, we notice there that that the term Lord was used, and they would have recognized that term. They were very familiar with it. The Lord is one who rules over all. It's even the same word that they use for Caesar. So they understood that that means the supreme ruler. And Paul said to them, this is the God that I want to declare unto you, the one who has created it all, who has the right, the supreme right to rule over all. Now, then we talk about God's creation and... The kingdom of God in creation was established in Eden. So let's talk about the rule in Eden. Uh, God made our first parents, and they were subject to God by virtue of creation. And God demanded that they must submit to him. All of Adam's progeny fall under that directive of God, and that's because all of us proceed from that one man that God has made. At first, we know, Adam and Eve willingly obeyed God. Uh, Their obedience... Uh, caused them to receive everything that they needed at the hand of God. God was their benefactor. And as long as Adam was uh, obedient to God, then God would supply everything that Adam needed. Now, we call that a covenant of works. 
At that time, there was no grace needed. There was no salvation that was needed because Adam was under a covenant of works. If he obeyed God, then God would take care of him. But Adam sinned against God. Now, Adam was innocent before, and in his innocence, God kept him in that perfect state as long as he didn't sin. So God's kingdom was established in Eden, and Adam then recognized God's rule. But Adam disobeyed God. Instead, Adam began to follow another king. Someone came and challenged God's authority, and so Adam submitted himself to that other rule. And so the established, or the kingdom that was established by creation was then divided, and so we find two kingdoms now that are at war with one another. Uh, Adam did not recognize God's full authority any longer, and he followed a different king. Now, from that point, all the way down to today, there has been strife, there has been a struggle, there has been conflict in creation's kingdom. The seed of the serpent and the seed of God are struggling over primacy. And, of course, that's the whole reason that Jesus had to be born, and that's the reason that Jesus went to the cross. And so out of that turmoil, God decided that he was going to call out a peculiar people. And so he separated out a particular people, and he codified laws by which they should live. And this is what we find at the rule of Sinai, the rule of Sinai. And that's when God chose out Israel. And he told them that the world had rejected his kingship, and yet his chosen people were to have no other gods to rule them. And so God gave them the Ten Commandments. That was a moral law that they were to live by. God gave them ceremonial laws. He gave them judicial laws, and those were the laws that governed them. And what God was doing was once again establishing the right that he had to rule over his own people until such time that all the world will be brought again into his kingdom. But that age-old struggle for primacy still remained. And so we find that Israel rejected God's kingdom, and they demanded that they should have an earthly king. And so God gave them what they wanted. And God said, I'm going to give you a warning about that. You're going to be sorry that you've chosen to do this. And so it was that uh, we have the history of the kings of Israel. Uh, For the most part, reading that history, there were some good kings, but for the most part, they were people that were corrupt. They didn't capitulate to the law of creation, to the laws that God gave. They didn't follow the rule of Sinai, but rather they also began to follow the God of this world. And so eventually, the kingdom of Israel was destroyed. And the rule of Sinai became so perverted that when we come down to the time of Jesus, the people had lost the kingdom. And now they were living under the Roman Empire. There were very, very few people in Israel that actually recognized the truth of who God is and what his kingdom was all about. And so when Jesus prayed this, when he said, Thy kingdom come, there's an element in that of a request to return to that perfect obedience that's in Eden and also to return to the righteous obedience of the rule of Sinai. Now, that brings us then to another aspect of the kingdom, and that is the Christian kingdom. And here we're not talking about a physical kingdom. This is not a kingdom that's made up of of, uh, buildings, of bricks and mortar. But this is the kingdom of God that comes into the hearts of his people. This is a kingdom of those who have been born again. Now, there are two great characteristics of this kingdom. The first is the rule of salvation. In order for the kingdom of God to come into a person's heart, that person has to be born again. The new birth brings him into the kingdom. Jesus said, except a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Now, this is a kingdom that's real. It's a kingdom that's here at this present moment. And it's in the hearts of those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, friends, this is what makes thy kingdom come such a very special statement because this is the great evangelistic prayer of Christ. Jesus prays that the kingdom of God would come into the hearts of men. And for that to happen, the gospel of Christ has to be preached over the whole world. Now, how could you not love that statement, thy kingdom come, when you realize that this is Jesus praying for the salvation of sinners? And I think that what Jesus is teaching here is that a primary part of all of our prayer lives ought to be this, that we pray that God's kingdom would come into people's hearts. We pray for lost people. We ask God to save people because when they understand who Jesus Christ is and when they trust him as the Savior, they come into the kingdom of God and God begins to rule over them. And that's the only way that the kingdom of God can actually come. It's by faith in Jesus Christ by that sacrifice that he made on Calvary. And so salvation is to be preached to all people. The gospel is the primary purpose of the church, and that is so that the kingdom of God would be established in all parts of the world. And that's why we send out missionaries. That's why your mission dollars go to many places in the world in order that people could be uh, hear the gospel of Christ and brought into the kingdom of God. And that's also why we try to teach you that you are to live like a child of God. And that's because the gospel of Jesus Christ is put on display through your life. And that's why we encourage you to witness to people at work. Why we, why we tell you that your light ought to shine for Jesus Christ. Because his kingdom must come into the hearts of men. And so for God's kingdom to be established, the gospel has to be preached and believed. Jesus said, thy kingdom come. Now after his birth... Uh, Jesus was brought into the temple, and there was a wonderful statement that was made uh, about him uh, by a man, a man named Simeon. Now, he was brought into the temple, and then Simeon took the baby up into his arms, and he said, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. So all of the people of the world are blessed because of Christ. He is salvation. He's the only way of salvation. And he's the only way that you can be brought into God's kingdom. Now we've talked... um, a, a little bit about the exclusivity, exclusivity of this prayer. When we talk about the relationship, you must know Jesus Christ as Savior before you have the relationship with the Father. You can't pray to God unless you know Jesus Christ. Well, this is another one of those exclusive parts of Jesus' prayer. There are many people who believe that there are many, many different paths to God. And so they say that the kingdom of God can be established through other means. But the Bible teaches that the only way that God's kingdom can come is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way but him. So there is no king but Christ. And so if you refuse to believe in him, according to the word of God, you'll never see the kingdom of God. Now that's one element of the Christian kingdom. But there's also another one that's very, very important. And that is the rule of surrender. Now I'm afraid that there are many people 
that are trying to bring others into the kingdom of God. And they don't realize that along with this rule of salvation, there is also the rule of surrender. And so you have many soul winners out there that are actually spreading a false gospel because they say that Christ must be your Savior, but he doesn't need to be your Lord. In other words, you can, you can be admitted into the kingdom of God by salvation, but you really don't have to be a subject in that kingdom. Now, I don't know how you could reasonably assume that Christ is your king if you're not his subject. In fact, the Apostle Paul uh, said it very clearly in his declaration of the gospel. He said in Romans 10, verse number 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, do you see that? Call upon the name of the Lord. The gospel has contained within it that element of surrender. In order to call Jesus Lord, it means that you must admit to his rule over your life. Lord means that you submit to him him as a subject. He is your king. And so many of these soul winners will go out and they knock on doors and they come with the three points and a prayer gospel message and they do not require people to be subjects of the king. And when they don't, they're preaching a false gospel. And so they claim uh, they're converts that never give any evidence of submission to Christ's rule. I want to give you a warning. If you call yourself a citizen of God's kingdom, and you can live like you always lived, and you can have the same friends that you always had, and if you can dress the same way that you always dressed, and you can think the same way that you always thought, if you go to the same places where you've always gone, If there is no conviction, if there is no change in you, if there is no surrender to the Lordship of Christ, then, friend, you are not in his kingdom. There is a change that takes place in the heart of a person who becomes a subject, a kingdom citizen. If you don't have the change, then you can't call God your Father. You can't reverence his name, and you can't honestly declare, Thy kingdom come. And that's because you're not even in his kingdom. Now, some people try to attach a name to that, and they call it lordship salvation. I don't care what you call it, because there is no other kind of salvation. There is no kingdom citizenship if Christ is not your Lord. Paul makes this statement in Philippians chapter 3. He says, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation, and the word means citizenship there, for our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby is able even to subdue all things to himself. So we are citizens of heaven, we are in God's kingdom, and how do we know that we are? How could you tell that you're in God's kingdom? Well, the answer to the question, there's been a change in your life. Something has occurred on the inside of you, and you have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, and then you have become a new creation in him. So there's a change then from those who were the enemies of the cross. There's a change from those whose God was their belly. There's a change from those who have minded earthly things. And that's because you've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Now, friend, if there is no Lord of your heart, then there is no Lord in your heart. The Christian kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. 
And his rule is that we always honor and obey his laws. God's laws can never be ignored. Now, I know that we sing a song sometimes that says, it's uh, been a long, long time since we sang it, but it's, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. And, of course, that's true because you can't be condemned once you become a Christian. You can't be condemned by the law any longer. But don't ever let a Christian say, I have abandoned God's law. God's law doesn't make any difference to me anymore. Because if it doesn't, then you haven't accepted God's rule. A ruler has rules. A ruler has laws. And to prove that you truly are in God's kingdom is when you receive him as the Lord and you understand that he has the right to govern you by his laws. And so that means that everything you find in the New Testament, everything that Jesus said, everything that the apostle says, said is a rule for your life. And everything that you find in the Ten Commandments, that is also a rule for your life. And you can't abandon that. You can't say it doesn't matter anymore. Jesus said in the fifth chapter of Matthew, he said, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And so I want to ask you a question. Can you really pray this prayer? Is it your desire that Christ's kingdom would be established in your heart? Or have you been so busy with your agenda that you can't fulfill Christ's agenda? Now today, the gospel has been very sorely degraded by so many preachers. It's been abandoned by those who really have their own agenda. You hear it on television all the time. You hear the preachers of health, wealth, and prosperity, and they come on there and they preach about all of that stuff. That's not the gospel of Christ. They're preaching a gospel that fulfills man's agenda. And so they say, God, give us what we want. God, we need all this stuff. Give us all this stuff. Because the most important thing is for us to be happy and for us to have everything that we desire. That is not the gospel of Christ. That is a false gospel. When Jesus prayed, thy kingdom come, he never intended for anyone to pray, my kingdom come. And that's what you find with the Osteens and the Copelands and the Myers. They want their kingdom to come on this earth. And they have it for a little while because they do gain their wealth. Look at their backgrounds. Yes, they're very wealthy people, but all of that's going to be burned up in the fires of hell. Now, let me add one more piece of information before we move on from this. Why do we want God's kingdom to come into hearts? Is it for the one who is lost? You know, that's the way the gospel is often preached. God loves you. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to have a fulfilled life. God has a wonderful plan for your life. And I want to say to you that if you want the kingdom to God to come into the hearts of men, it's not for them particularly or primarily. It's for God. It's that God might be magnified and glorified. You know why? Because God deserves to rule over all. And when people are brought to salvation, when they're brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ, God is glorified. New subjects are brought under his rule, and they begin to recognize him as king. And so salvation is for the sinner second. Salvation is for the Savior first, because he deserves to rule and to reign. And that's the purpose, that Christ came to the world. He came to claim a people for himself. And when they come to him, he's glorified as the king. So let's don't turn it around. Let's don't make it all about us, because he's the one who deserves to rule. So isn't that great? I mean, that's a wonderful thought, isn't it? There's a Christian kingdom. God is ruling in that kingdom right here and now, and people can be brought into that kingdom right here and now. 
And so here is a wonderful evangelistic petition that's made by Christ. We must pray for the salvation of sinners, and we must surrender to God's rule. So what we've been talking about thus far is the kingdom of the past. That's creation. That's the rule in Eden and the rule at Sinai. And then there's a kingdom of the present. That's Christ ruling in the hearts of all who have received him as the Savior and Lord. So he rules in salvation, and he rules in surrender. But there's yet another aspect of the kingdom. Thy kingdom come also has a future aspect. And this is the Christ kingdom. And there's another reason why I love that phrase, thy kingdom come, because there is a future kingdom that's coming. Christ means Messiah. And what we're talking about is Messiah's kingdom. And this is a physical kingdom. This is a kingdom that's over the entire earth. When Peter preached on Pentecost, he told the people, he said, Therefore let all the house of Israel assuredly know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now I hope you never get into your, eye, your head the idea that Christ is a deposed ruler. That what he's looking for is just an opportunity to come back and to sit on the throne. He's waiting for something good to happen and then he's going to come back and rule everybody. Peter said, he hath been made Lord and Christ. That means that he is Lord and Christ right now, whether you believe it or not. But since Eden, there's always been that problem. Men have rejected the kingdom of God. Adam and Eve rejected the kingdom in Eden. They lost Eden because of that. Israel rejected the kingdom after Sinai, and they desired that Saul should reign over them. And then the Jews rejected the kingdom when Jesus came because they said, we will not have this man to rule over us. And we all know today that people reject God's salvation. And so they don't want Christ to come and rule in their hearts. They're not interested in a spiritual kingdom. And if they're not, they'll have no part in the future physical kingdom that's coming. Now, I love that phrase, thy kingdom come so much, because I know Christ, and I'm looking forward to the rule of the second coming. Now, there is the Christ kingdom, the rule of the second coming. And I wish that I could make it a sermon about the second coming today, and I could talk to you all about the things that are going to happen then. We don't have time for all that. We have to hurry on here. But there is a kingdom of Christ that's coming. It's a worldwide kingdom that's going to be established upon this earth, And despite the rejection of men, the rejection of men matters little because when this kingdom comes, Christ is going to rule with a rod of iron and there is no resistance that will be permitted. Now today, of course, we know that God shows some latitude. He tolerates the wickedness of men. Uh, He lets men pretty much live as they want to live. But do you remember what also Paul told those Athenians? He said, in the times of this ignorance God winked at, But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. And so Christ, the Messiah, is coming to judge the world, and he's coming to establish an everlasting universal kingdom. Jude said, The Lord is coming with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all. Now, I want to tell you why I love that phrase, thy kingdom comes so much. One of the reasons is because of that future kingdom, because the Bible teaches that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, 
that when this kingdom comes, you'll come with him. You'll be one of those ten thousands of saints. I'm going to be one of those who comes back and rules this world with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when that happens, when Jesus comes again, we will also see the rule of the sovereign coming. Because at that time, Jesus will be once again the sovereign Lord over all. I mean, recognize it. Once again, all of creation will be under his rule. And that means all creatures. It means all men and all angels. Now, we know that there are some men that are still fallen men. That's because they haven't received Christ as Savior. And there are some angels that are fallen angels. That's Satan and the ones who are the angels that followed him in his rebellion. But at this time, it makes no difference whether they reject Christ because God, Christ, is going to rule them all. They rejected and they resisted him, but no more when that kingdom comes. There's that familiar passage in Philippians that I can't help but read to you again. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, friends, that is the sovereign coming of Jesus Christ. No creature is ever going to resist him any longer. None will refuse to bow before him. All will be forced to bow the knee and surrender to the sovereign Christ of all creation. 1 Corinthians says, Then cometh the end, and when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. You know, there's a lot of talk today about how that America needs to come back to being a Christian nation. There's been a lot of effort to try to establish Christ's kingdom in the halls of Congress. And there are many people who think that what we can do, we can just bring in Christ's kingdom by just legislating it in. You can't mix Christ's kingdom with the world's kingdom. Did you know Roman Catholicism tried that all throughout their history? They started out that way. And you know what they were left with? No salvation and no kingdom. The truth is, Christ's kingdom does not need earthly kingdoms for power and authority. Christ's kingdom does not need America. Christ's kingdom does not need any kingdom in this world for its authority. And as a citizen of Christ's kingdom, I'm not really interested in advancing America's agenda. Now, America's agenda is tainted with sin. My agenda is not America's agenda. My agenda, first of all, is Christ's kingdom because I'm first and foremost a citizen of Christ's kingdom. And so I pray for America, and I support America, only as long as it never conflicts with the one who has the sovereign right to rule over all. Jesus prayed, thy kingdom come. And as a citizen of his kingdom, that's what I want. Right now, I want Christ's kingdom to come into the hearts of men. We will labor for that. We will preach about it. We'll work for that as long as Christ allows. But the day that God shuts the door on grace and he says no more can come, when he says I'm coming back to purge the world of sin forever and I'm going to judge the wickedness and righteousness, that's the day that I'm going to say, Maranatha, even so come, Lord Jesus. Now I long for that time. And when he comes, it doesn't make any difference who's standing on the other side of the door. He has the right to rule and he will rule. So that brings me then to the last thought for you today. The kingdom comes with warning and without warning. The kingdom comes with warning because we can read about it right here in the Word of God. 
The Bible says that Jesus is coming to judge the world. He's given fair warning, and he says that you must repent of your sins, and you must trust him as Savior. And if you don't, the Bible says he's going to judge you in righteousness, and unless you have been born again into his kingdom, you will suffer the almighty wrath of God. That's the warning that's given. But the kingdom also comes without warning, because the Scripture also says that no one knows the day or the hour when it's going to happen. I don't have any assurance for any person who's in this room today that you're going to have another breath of life, that you're going to see another day that tomorrow will ever come for you. I can't give you that assurance. I do know that if Christ should come back, you'll be plunged immediately into the aftermath of his almighty second coming. So what you decide now could actually seal your destiny forever. If Jesus should come at this very moment, his kingdom will be firmly established, and you won't have an opportunity to be a part of that kingdom. That is, unless you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, unless you have received him as your Savior, that's the only way that you can be a part of his kingdom. Now, that's what I encourage you to do. I encourage you to do that today. Submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive him as your Savior. Recognize him as Lord. He has the right to rule over you. And then, when Christ comes again, you'll have a part in that glorious kingdom of the future. And so I pray for every person in this room that truly, in your prayers, that you are able to say, Thy kingdom come. That you know what that means. And that you... Come under the authority of Jesus Christ in all three areas, by creation, by the fact that he is the Messiah, the, the Savior of this world, and by the fact that he's coming back again. You need to be submitted to Christ in all three of those areas before you can pray, thy kingdom come. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are just awed at your majesty. We do recognize you, Lord, as the one who has the right, the sovereign right to rule over all. And we just ask you, Lord, that we would work for your kingdom, that it would come in righteousness, that it would come into the hearts of men, and that every person that's brought to salvation becomes a subject of your reign and your rule because you have the right and all authority. Lord, I pray for lost sinners today. Help them to... Realize the gospel of Christ. As the Apostle Paul said, they must repent. God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. And with repentance will come faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray, Lord, that you would work in the hearts of people today. Help them to very clearly understand that to be a part of your kingdom, they must know Jesus as Savior. And then I pray for Christians here today that we would dedicate ourselves wholly to you, that we do recognize the right your right to rule over us, and that, Lord, we would submit to all of your authority and obey you as you have told us to do. So, Lord, bless in the time that we sing. Speak to hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's